Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with uh, Roman Skaskew again. Uh, Roman, this you know this is the first time we've spoken since the Bucha atrocities, and I've often talked about how I know someone who almost bought a house in Bucha. That person is you. So tell me a little bit about like where where in that town were you gonna settle and how close is it to what happened because the Blanca street uh, is is the is the is the place where a, a lot of this happened it's not the only place but it was kind of the there's a wall street journal article where that was kind of the line of uh russian defense basically where anybody who any movement there snipers basically just killed people so you know, talk me through, you know, where, where you were looking at buying and why you ultimately decided not to. And it was relatively recently too, right? It was about a year ago. Yablunka Street is on the southern edge of the town closest to Kiev. So it makes sense for like for the Russians that was their front. Uh, I've driven through Bucha easily a hundred times. Uh, it's an affluent suburb of Kiev and it's sort of in the direction of my in-laws. So Whenever I'd stay with my in-laws, we would drive through Bucha on our way to Kiev for a variety of reasons. And there's a hospital on sort of the northwest edge of Kiev where my daughter was born, just like three, three miles from Bucha. We did not have a specific property in mind. We just drove through there. Like every time we drove there, we would spot new restaurants and, oh, look, a yoga studio opened up next to the stadium. And we're just noticing all the new businesses. And we thought it might be a a lovely place to live. We didn't get as far as looking at a specific lot, but yeah, we thought about it a year ago. Um, actually being close to Russia was kind of on our minds. I think I mentioned it to my wife at one point, like let's move somewhere in the West of Ukraine. And then we decided ultimately to move uh, to the US where, where I am now. Uh, so yeah, it's it's close to home. It's, it's shocking, like seeing the, the photos of the mass graves there. Um, cause it was like, it felt, it felt close to home. It could have been my home. So it's, yeah, it's much closer to me than I think it is for, for other people watching this stuff from afar. Now you had mentioned a potential neighbor in the past who they found hanged. Well, again, this, this, you weren't able to fully like completely confirm yeah. this, but these are the story, like a, stories that you've heard. Can you go over that? quickly and yeah you know, so that, that's a little further than Bucha and that's in a town that was never occupied uh, though it was bombed not severely bombed but regularly bombed uh and by the way my in-laws are today uh in route driving back to that town so I'll, I'll find out some details about it uh and there in the town where my in-laws are from uh we we actually did pick out a property and also thought about buying that but again decided uh, still too close to Russia. <laughs> Let's think about Western Ukraine. Uh, what maybe. town? What town was that? Uh, it's a town called Malin. Okay. Um, and it's it was sort of on the flank of the Russian advance. Uh, yeah. So uh, this is just a rumor at this point. But next to the plot of land that we were going to buy, which overlooks a, a beautiful lake, um, there was a a big house kind of like a little too imposing a house. You don't want a neighbor who's like cast a shadow over your property. Uh, but apparently the 
the rumor is that the the owner of that house, he was a successful local entrepreneur, owned a supermarket, and uh, he was found hanged. Russian, it was a Russian uh, agent, and he he was discovered and threatened, or he thought he was discovered, or the story is woefully incomplete. But yeah, that's also like really close to home because uh, would have been my neighbor. And I'll also add that it, it's fairly typical for for Russians to sponsor entrepreneurs in places that they want to control. I think one of the stands, like uh, Tajikistan or Uzbekistan, like half the main businessmen are just sponsored by Russia. It's a it's a very typical strategy. And those are they're sponsored by Russian oligarchs, like private investors, or are they sponsored no, directly like, by the Kremlin, by the Kremlin. or? Okay. Like it may take a circuitous route, but right. That's what I'm trying to get at. Vertically structured, and it's it's Kremlin influence. Yeah. Okay, so it might it might come from a private investor who's an oligarch who has strong ties to Moscow, who may or may not getting may may or may not be getting direct funding from the Kremlin to sponsor these sorts of activities. Yep. Um, because unlike in the U.S., there's a very close tie between business and, and government in Russia, right? In, in the sense that oligarchs can't, can't really run for, polit- for political positions, but they, because Putin kind of blocks them from doing that. I think um, the head of Yukos kind of tried to defy that and we all, we all know what happened to him, right? He was imprisoned and, and things like that. Right, so right. Although part of, part of the Putin narrative, uh, uh, is that is that he made war on these oligarchs who got their riches and their property through ill-gotten means. Uh, and there's some truth to that. Like there was a lot of uh, fraud and a lot of like, not coercion, but manipulation when they seized all the, after Russia collapsed, they seized all of their assets in kind of nefarious ways. Uh, and uh, they had free reign of the country. So part of like Putin's, Part part of his prestige came from uh, cracking down on them, although he didn't make anything better. He just took control of the assets himself and cracked down on those oligarchs who weren't supporting him. And in fact, uh, along those lines, like one sort of unintended consequence of the sanctions is that it gives Putin even stronger control over his oligarchs because they're now even more beholden to him. Uh, because they're they're limited in what in their economic activity outside of Russia. All right, let's go back to Bucha. What what do you think? So there's there's a number of different narratives on this, um, and let's stick to the the predominant one, which I think is the closest to the truth, which is that these atrocities were committed by Russians. So let's 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 assume that for the most part. Um, in terms of, do you think this was something that was ordered from the top down, or do you think this was more of a, like a Lieutenant Cali-esque sort of situation where the Russians got frustrated and they started, you know, taking out, um, or shooting civilians in order to exercise that frustration? Uh, let me start with some historic context, and then I'll get to that question. Uh, so at the end of the Second World War, uh, all 
all the grandparents of people today in Eastern Europe tell stories about the violence of the Red Army, uh, stories of mass rape. Uh, a little bit before that, American generals uh, commented on the total lack of regard for human life uh, from the Red Army. Uh, before that, in the winter war with Finland, when the Soviet Union invaded Finland, the Finns stopped marking hospitals and ambulances with the Red Cross because not only were the Soviets ignoring that, they were specially targeting those facilities. All right. And before that, uh, Tolstoy, Tolstoy, uh, you know, who's a, a bit of a Russian patriot himself, uh, he, when he described the life of the Cossacks in his novellas, the Cossacks and Haji Morand, he, he alluded to, without much detail, alluded to the senseless cruelty of the Russian army. So it has always been this way. And, and I think that's part of the evidence that, like that, you need to take that into consideration. So was it ordered from the top or was it part of, a, was it just a local initiative? My, my hunch is that it's both. What comes from the top is the identification and targeting of key people in a society. Um, that's what happened in Crimea, for example. When they took over Crimea, a bunch of activists and just like high profile people, community leaders, they were taken away. And one of them was discovered murdered with signs of torture and mutilation of his body. So that's enough to sort of put put the whole like resistance underground to scare it away all but the most patriotic and fanatic people get scared away so there is that very deliberate strategy that comes from the top and i think some of the some of the bombings of civilian infrastructure also come from the top within the ranks of the army like i think it is local initiative very likely because it's a culture it's a culture that's run by fear and intimidation this has been observed for hundreds of years. Uh, Marquis de Custine, the French writer, said that they substitute policing and fear for civil society or for a, a foundation of civil society, something like that, 200 years ago. So you have all of these soldiers who come from a culture um, that runs on fear and intimidation. I'm sure they don't have any training like we get about rules of engagement and stuff like that. It's just not. It's just not what they do. And then they're in a situation where they take casualties. They don't know who's shooting at them. They're frustrated by their inability to accomplish their mission and they commit war crimes. And I would say like what's, what's happening in some of the, you know, in some of the, from some of the commentary from like the dissident right, like they're just seizing on some detail like, oh, look, this corpse is moving. It's obviously all stage. Oh, yeah, there's actually a there's a Deutsche Welt um, report that goes through like line by line and debunks them. So like that, that the hand moving is a uh, distortion from the like a, from the mirror. The but but regardless, yeah, yeah. like yeah. if you look at it, like in the big in the big picture, like. Like there's a there's intercepted intercepted calls uh that the ukrainian secret services publish of russians talking about their massacres there are dozens of uh, interviews of people from bucha maybe it's in the hundreds now all right like of them just describing in great detail you know leading reporters around come look here they, they lift up you know this is where the shallow grave of my daughter or, or husband is 
Like th there's just such a mountain of information that, that seizing on some little detail seems almost frivolous. Although we should also do it, like if someone, if someone has a big concern. Another thing that I'd be happy to do is, is uh, if there's somebody who like I have good rapport with and trust, let's, let's go visit. I'll be going back to Ukraine to see how my relatives are doing and to help them out. Uh, you, you could have your, your summer show from, from Bucha live on the ground. I, 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 would, I would, if I could convince my wife to let me go over there. I, I mean, we're talking like within weeks, not, uh, not within months, right? So um, I don't want to make any commitments here, but uh, I, I definitely, you know, I'd definitely be interested in going. Um, the, the other thing that I've noticed too is, are you familiar, <clears throat> familiar with these POM threes? POM-3 anti-personnel mines? No. So the Russians are leaving behind these, these um, advanced anti-personnel mines that can, you know, based on either the audio or the vibration of footsteps, can tell if you're a person or you're an animal and will detonate for person. But they're leaving all of these booby traps behind in these in these areas for you know obviously people to find so there's there's some nasty you know there are some nasty things like that that are and then there's the famous famous picture of the any tank mines on the highway where you have the soldiers just casually kicking them yeah. kicking them off the, um yeah so there's a lot of uh you know stuff on the battlefield that they're still still clearing up which is also an interesting part of I don't know if it's necessarily a war crime, right? But uh, it's 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 pretty close if you're doing that in populated areas as, as people are returning to their homes. Um, so, I mean, if that's what we're finding at Bucha, what do you think we're going to find in at Mariupol? Um, I think I think it's really bad. I think we'll never know the number of people killed in Mariupol. Um, by the way, the next town from Bucha is called Bordyanka, and there have been a uh, number of statements, even official statements from Ukrainian officials, that Bordyanka is worse than Bucha, but nothing like nothing has come out yet. Perhaps uh, they're only referring to like the destruction of buildings that came under artillery fire. Um, so there's that too. Um, Mariupol, Mariupol's bad, and it's it's a little different. Uh, Bucha was not heavily defended, so it was occupied intact. Mariupol was extremely heavily defended, and the Russians got really frustrated. So I think eighty percent of the buildings have been damaged by artillery fire; some completely destroyed. So I think it's a bit different there. Um, I think the number of killed is many thousands. It's a uh, it's a real tragedy. There, the, apparently, the mayor of Mariupol said that there are mobile crematoriums working there, so the Russians are destroying uh, casualties. Let's talk about the mobile crematoriums because nobody knows if this is true or not, and I don't either. I haven't even seen anything, even in our press, okay. about it. Well, it. It first came out in 2014. There was news mm. that rumors that Russians were using mobile crematoriums to 
hide their own casualties, not not to like eliminate civilians. They're burning their own their own like soldiers' bodies, basically. Yeah, I mean, and that that's consistent with there were definitely videos of Russian journalists trying to film cemeteries with fresh graves getting assaulted or chased away. So they were making deliberate attempts to hide their casualties. Uh, we don't know if the mobile crematorium thing is true. Uh, but at one point, the U.S. State Department made a statement that they thought it was true uh, in 2014. Again, that could be, you know, the U.S. government doing propaganda. So then then just recently, they said there were the mayor of Mariupol said that the mobile crematoriums are working in in Mariupol, either to hide evidence of war crimes or to hide the Ru Russia's own casualties. We don't have more than that. Um, yeah, there's no like, there, there's no evidence more than that, but it's it's crazy. It's something out of a horror movie. Yeah, I, and the other so there's there's a there's another there's a really good YouTube channel that T C McCarthy turned me on to, and it's look, it's it's like an official. You know, he 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 kind of portrayed it as like this guy's been allowed to do it and stuff like that, but it's like straight like the guy's working directly he's a public affairs officer for the ukrainian military right but it's still pretty good it's called uh Oper operator starsky oh i love him yeah he's great yeah so on 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 his show he claimed that they either captured or found the body of a vdv like a russian airborne soldier and he had been collecting women's earrings like oh like just like weird oh, no, like that, that's that's well known. There, there are several pictures of Russians who were killed who had like jewelry in their pockets and stuff. There, there's a lot of that. And I think another, another like big, re very revealing thing that happened since we last spoke was there's that three hours of CCTV footage that was hacked from a Belarusian uh, post office with Russian soldiers mailing stuff, mailing stuff back. And apparently all that information has been made public. And I've seen diagrams of like where in Russia the stuff is going. Uh, one, one soldier in particular, they know his name. He mailed, uh, I think, over 100 kilograms of stuff uh, back to his family. And again, that's consistent with Ukrainian, with uh, phone call intercepts that Ukrainians have published about Russians talking about what they're going to send back. That's also consistent with photographs that Ukrainians have taken where they blow up an armored personnel carrier that's not like completely disintegrated and they open it up and they see like uh, they see stuff inside. Uh, there was also one destroyed Ural truck that had three yeah. washing machines in back. And there's a funny Twitter channel. There's a great Twitter channel called Evergreen Intel. And they just. Uh, but, do, like, but, by the way, by the way, for the audience, like a Ural truck is like a. Um, a multi-wheeled, uh, like heavy equipment sort of. Uh, it's 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 like it's like a um, tractor trailer, but tractor trailer for like rugged terrain. Yeah, basically. Yeah, military yeah. tractor trail trailer. So the Evergreen Intel is always identifying destroyed uh, destroyed equipment, whether Russian or Ukrainian. They try to remain neutral. And uh, they uh, they did a funny post where they identified the model of washing machine that was in back of this truck. There's a lot of Maytags, right? <laughs> I forgot what it was, but he made a funny comment like, "This is peak peak Intel right here, where you're identifying bombed out washing machines." 
So speaking of washing machines, apparently there's like a trail of household appliances along the road out of Chernobyl, right? So did you hear what these Muldoons did in, in Chernobyl? Oh, I know they dug in in the Red Forest and yeah. got radiation poisoning. Well, I don't know. I don't know if they're if there's been any reports yet that they've gotten radiation poisoning, but I think the speculation is is if you've been digging in the red forest and you're digging up the, the irradiated soil, there's a bunch of um cesium-237 and strontium-90, which is like nasty. Like strontium-90 is a um I, you know, I, I don't know what, the, what the, the right word is, but it's like, you know, it can get in, it's like a calcium sort of substitute. You can get into your cereal, like milk, milk, stuff like that, um, and really mess you up. But it, it, they're doing that. I think, I think there's like in an hour, you can get a, a year's worth of radiation exposure in certain parts of Chernobyl um the the russians like the the staff at chernobyl told the russians they told them exactly where they shouldn't go what to avoid and the russians just ignored them like i just i don't just that mentality is just so alien to me that people would ignore uh, i mean the u.s military would uh, would just if they had had an operation like that they would take it with finesse they would have experts on site um yeah, I mean, U.S. I, military has taken criticism for being reckless with burn pits. Or, right. Or burning. Yeah. Which, let's be honest, was not smart, right? Like, <laughs> right? Why aren't you wearing masks? Like, just like simple, simple stuff. But, like, we're talking about the site of the world's, I think, second worst nuclear disaster. I guess Fukushima's was worse. But, um, I, I just can't possibly imagine why they would allow their soldiers to come in and just not. They also shut off the electricity, right? And they started diverting um, diesel. Like they, they need so the army for a little bit gave them diesel in order to to keep their backup generators running because if they didn't keep the generators running, um, you know, the, there are parts of the reactor that would overheat and and cause some serious issues. So the Russians gave them diesel for a while. And then when the war started going badly, they just kind of cut them off and, and then just told the Belarusian, the, the Belarusians, like, uh, just make it work. Like, you know, provide electricity to, to the Chernobyl plant from Belarusia and like, didn't bother like following up on the details, just kind of put it all on the Belarusians. Hmm. Like, yeah, this, I, I mean, I don't think it could have quite, quite gone, the reactor could have quite gone to meltdown, right? But they they basically just put it on that, <laughs> another country to solve the problem and get electricity to the plant. So they were, I think they were without electricity for, or didn't have that connection to cool, cool the reactor for about a, five days, something like that. And they ultimately did solve the problem, but it wasn't the Russians, according to this report, that it solved the problem. It was the Belarusians. Now, I do take that with a grain of salt because we probably don't have great access yeah. to information. And it's hard to believe that, um, was it Rosatom, something like that, is the Russian atomic agency would, would kind of allow that, uh, that to happen. 
because they yeah, did have experts. I have the feeling with the Chernobyl plant, I do not have the complete story. The details that we're getting are insane. Apparently, the, the digging into the Red Forest that's backed up by satellite images, which I guess could be faked. Uh, I don't. I think it's unlikely. Yeah, I, I think these Muldoons were that were that dumb. I mean, having been in the army, I've seen stupid stuff in the army. Not not that dumb, but I remember we were using like cark paint to paint the tanks, and like these guys weren't wearing like you know filtration like 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 masks and things like that, and they were like starting to cough. It's just like they eventually did. Like we correct our problems pretty quickly, but I would see stupid stuff like that sometimes I, I can total and, and i and given the the way that the russians operated in northern ukraine you know they're you take you take the like the the limited number of dumb moments you see in the u.s army and multiply them a thousandfold and that's kind of yeah i can Their see that general disregard for human life yeah yeah and just like i lack of like solid logistical planning like even like just basic basic like tactics right not going into herringbone formations in the middle like stacking up three like three abreast in the middle of a road nose to butt all that all that um tactical incompetence i'm not i i I would totally believe the red forest narrative because it just it, it just fits within the general stupidity and depravity that we've seen from this russian russian army thus far so there's there's that in terms of kind of where do you see the next phase of the the war going is the tank dead as every every uh newly minted journalistic expert says uh i think as, as an as an infantry officer as an infantry officer too let's let's from an from an armor, an armor officer to a former armor officer to a former infantry officer is yeah, the tank the dead the future is uh light super kitted out light infantry and nothing else no, the tank is not dead. Uh, we'll just have to do more and more careful integrations with a lot of things, drones, anti-drone technologies. But the way the way to advance rapidly, especially over over open terrain, was and remains armor. Yeah. So, so just so that folks know, the next stage of the war is going to be in the southeast. Um, kind of stretching from Kherson all the way north to, I don't know, Kharkiv, maybe, or Kharkiv. East and north. East, yeah, east and north. The Donetsk, where I found out last week that my cousin is, very bad situation there, and then north uh, uh, Donetsk uh, to Kharkiv. Have you, have you talked to your cousin at all? No, I talked to his wife, so uh, who's understandably panicked, and I get the worst... Uh, you know, the worst interpretations of every little scrap of news, probably. So, uh, what, like, what did she have to say about the situation there? This, you know, um, well, uh, since it's an active war zone, I don't want to say anything detailed. She, she just says it's, it's really bad, a lot of hard fighting. That She's constantly afraid. And she's there right now? He is there right now. I, I oh, talked to is. his wife, yeah. Okay. But she's safe. She's in a safer. Yeah, area. yeah, she's in the view. Uh, now, here's here's the other thing that we we rarely, if ever, see. How, on a general level, and I understand why we don't see it because of opsec, operational security, things like that. But how is the 
and, and on the Russian side, there are reports that as much as 20% of Russian combat power, so that's men, material, aircraft, et cetera, has been destroyed. Where is kind of Ukraine from a general level in terms of you know, their combat power right now? Oh, I would love to know. I've been very curious about that too. Uh, and it's been a total blackout of that information, understandably. But yeah, that's that's an important question. And I think the best way to guess would just be to look at ratios. I think early on when Ukraine did disclose their losses, uh, I think it was four to one. Uh, it was either three to one or four to one. I believe it was four to one, uh, like Russian losses to Ukrainian losses. Which makes sense because the, the key ratio for a general general attack, you need to have three attackers for every one defender. And if you're attacking in cities, it's supposed to be 10 to one. Right. And the Russians were no, no, nowhere near, I think, either of those ratios going right. in. Yeah. So I would guess that. And, and that's a shame because that's a lot of... Uh, a lot of Ukrainians and a lot of very much needed equipment. Um, in the so this this next phase of the war, the universal interpretation is that it'll be harder for Ukraine. Because oh, but the, but by the way, the only statistic I did hear is that the Ukrainian army has more tanks than they started with at the beginning of the war. I, I, I believe that. that. I, I believe that. that to be true. I I don't know. Well, because they keep taking Russian tanks, right? Like, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Because you know, part of that combat power doesn't mean it's necessarily on the on the Russian side. Is it necessarily was destroyed? It's just lost. That's right. Right. Or abandoned. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, and lost could mean stolen. <laughs> could be any number of things. Yeah. So, yeah the the terrain in the south is as we were talking about before the call, is extremely flat. Like extremely flat, there's a sense that you don't even, it's very difficult to even see or detect intervisibility lines. I'm sure like they have to be there. They have to be there somewhere, right? It's just very, very, because uh, look, I, I, were, I was at the National Training Center. There were definitely intervisibility lines. Now it was a little bit, you know, there, it was in the high desert, so there were more mountains, et cetera. So uh, but it was still pretty flat, and you could see for you know eight kilometers out, you know things like that. You could see tanks coming miles away. That's sort of the environment that the second phase of the war is going to have to morph into. And look, I'm a former tanker, and so you know, take that with whatever warning you can, because I'm going to certainly have my own bias, but. When I saw tanks in Fallujah, I was shocked. I was like, what are the, like, what is going on? I would not, like, that's a death trap in cities. And the Russians quickly determined that, but that was 20 years ago, right? It's, it's like something we knew 20 years ago. Now, the US has been able to integrate tanks into urban combat as kind of a, a, a bullet magnet for the infantry which I get, but still they're highly vulnerable to top-down attacks, things like that. Um, but I did, um, you know, in October of 2001, we did a 
had a rotation against the 82nd Airborne. And the purpose, my old division, your old division. And the purpose of that training was to uh, allow them to practice with these new systems called the Javelin. And at the time, I believe I was like a, um, I was an XO. Um, and, you know, XOs or you know, executive officers in a, a, like a, an armored troop at the National Training Center, we were, we were essentially the scouts, of, not the divisional scouts, right? But we were the, the scouts for inter, uh, parts of these, what they call combat reconnaissance patrols which would be in front of a motorized rifle, like a Russian Soviet style motorized rifle battalion. And we would have to move, you know, a few clicks ahead of the motorized rifle battalion to clear enemy uh, contact and also assess and give the regimental commander the intelligence on where he should send his main effort. Okay. And as part of this rotation on my route planning, I would draw these big circles around any major terrain feature, like hills, um, like little crevices, nooks, and crannies where the crunchies, as we like to affectionately called the infantry. Yeah, crunchies with yeah, the would, javelin to be hiding. Yep, that makes sense. Would in place javelins teams. So I think at the time I would draw a circle with a four kilometer diameter. And then I would just around those suspected javelin positions. And we would also get intel from division scouts about where some of these teams might have gone in. And then I would just plot a route so that our infantry or our, sorry, our motorized rifle battalions and tanks and armored vehicles would just avoid them. And the, the units that avoided them did just fine. We accomplished our mission. They just, you know, encircle and destroy. The, Units that did not got slaughtered. So, but at the end of the day, you can't advance across these wide open spaces without tanks. So, you know, the media with, you know, the kind of the newly minted, like military warfare experts, right, who are, who are talking and, and doing all this stuff are acting as if the tank is dead. The tank is not dead. Okay. Now, there are new tactics that need to be examined and perfected, particularly with the use of drones and anti-drone technology. Because instead of kind of the old school way that I learned was every intervisibility line, and this was this was not a this is not something that was taught. It was something that we just learned from experience at the National Training Center. Is that every time we we're about to hit the next intervisibility line the tank commanders would literally get off their tanks, grab their, you know, you've heard of death before dismount, right? Like that, that that's going to get you killed. We would get off our tanks, with a, bring our binos along, and we would scoot up to the next invisibility line. We would look through our binos, scan the horizon, make sure there weren't any M1 tanks hiding. hiding. And if there were, that was great too, because I would figure out where it was. I would plot it. I would re pre-register a target reference point with our you know, Katusha rockets back in, or you know, BM-21 grads in the back. And then I would report, you know, go back to my tank, 
report it to the rest of the unit, designate who we were going to take out. And then the moment we would go, we would go over the top, you know, we'd creep up, get them into our, into our sites. And then I'd give the order. The artillery would start raining down and then the tank would, you know, would, would be destroyed. And then we'd do the same thing. We would maneuver using the body systems to get to the next inner visibility line. And then we would rinse, rinse and repeat. And that's kind of the sort of things you have to do. But, but according to you, Roman, like that terrain's even flatter. It's like Nebraska flat, not Iowa flat. Cause Iowa's was not really that flat as you mentioned, right. Having been in the Iowa writers program, but it is the step, right? Yes. Yeah. That's certainly what it seemed like to me. Uh, when you get out there past uh Past Zaporizhia, I, I've been to Mariupol and Donetsk in 2015, or Donetsk, I was there 2012, Mariupol 2015, and yeah, it's it's insane. It felt like it felt like I was on another planet or something. It was just so disorienting, especially as a light infantryman who carries a weapon with a you know 300 or with a 550 meter effective range. Like it's just the horizon as far as you can see in every direction. And I'm reminded of old stories of like travelers in the steppes. They used the stars to navigate, uh, to know where they were. There's also an idea uh, that uh, around Kherson, where the Dnipro River flows into the Black Sea, that Hades from the Odyssey in ancient Greece was based on the Kherson area because they described just a flat land that goes forever and a slow moving river in some ancient Greek literature. So when the Ukrainians are asking for tanks and aircraft, this is this is why the tank the tank is not dead. It's going to be challenged. The tank is not dead because you, it's very hard to to advance rapidly across vast open spaces with artillery raining down, machine guns raining down, um, with what kind of light infantry? Like you need you need yeah. tanks to to do that, and the. At the same vein, the Ukrainians won't necessarily have the same advantages they had when they're operating from kind of the forests of the north and the cities of the north. Like that terrain is ideal for like light infantry, javelin, uh, small unit tactics, things like that. Like that's that's infantry ground. That's a place where a tanker does not want to be. Yeah, we could have used some mountains too. I've argued that Ukraine should be like a I've argued previously before this all started that Ukraine should be like Switzerland. Everyone needs to be armed. The country should be neutral and we should be covered in mountains. Yeah, you can't. Well, I'm sure the Russians are working on that right now. Right. They're probably creating enough rubble that you can start to, to, to have, have mountains. Um, yeah. So that's, that, that, that's, that's, that's my concern because in that environment too, the the well, the Ukrainians will have better interior lines in terms of logistic support and things like that. They're also going to need to have that three to one overmatch from an attacker to a a defender, right? So if they if they take the initiative there, it's going to be a little bit more dicey, shall we say? Um, they're going to need kind of a three to one advantage in order to like generate an offensive sufficient to stop the Russians. So I imagine the early days, the probably the best, 
kind of operational strategy for them is to prepare for the the first Russian onslaught and a trip that you know the, those units down to whittle them down a little bit and then launch a counteroffensive as opposed to just launching a counteroffensive to preempt the Russian attack. The other thing that concerns there's two th- actually two primary things that concern me right now. Um, number one, Putin learned from his mistakes and adjusted very quickly, very quickly. Um, that to, you know, I, I could not see a Western government reacting that quickly to such an enormous setback, right? So he quickly realized he didn't have the combat power in the North to prosecute what he wanted to do. Rather than reinforce failure, he withdrew everything, regardless of how it looked, which, you know, it looked like a debacle. But, you know, credit, give the man credit where credit's due. Uh, He quickly recognized the failure uh, and is moving everything to the, you know, the, the Southeastern Front. The second thing that, and that worries me, like he's he's adapting, he's adapting very quickly. The second thing that worries me is the initial incompetence of the campaign where they didn't have a centralized commander, at least according to, to Western media sources. So, and there, I think there's a strong reason to doubt that narrative because it just, it doesn't make any sense. It's completely confounding that you would try to run a military operation 500 miles away from Moscow, but it's certainly possible. Well, so I think they believe their own propaganda and they didn't think it would resemble a war. So when you take that into account, it becomes more believable. Yeah. Like they thought it would just be like, like it really was a special military operation, right? Like Putin really thought that the sheer presence of Russian forces would break the backs of the Ukrainians and scare them into submission. And it obviously blew up in their faces. But that said, he's appointed a um, commander of the the region. And I reviewed the guy's background. Unlike Shoigu, who's a complete fraud, um, this guy has you know, significant military experience. I don't know how much war experience, but he went to the, he had the, was it the Frunz or Frunzi Military Academy, which is like the Russian, the Russian version of West Point. Okay. Um, he spent, uh, I think 20, he was one of the first, um, kind of the early groups of Russians in Syria. So he, again, without having done a much deeper dive on this background, like, like, look, I'm going to be honest. I, I read, I read a Wikipedia article about the guy, so God knows how, how, how good it is. So I'm, 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 I'm. There's no reason for it to be wrong. That's relevant. Sure, but again, I want, I don't want people to overstate what my opinion is. It's based on very, very limited information, but I would conjecture right, without any evidence, that his having been in the Syria campaign is a tell to what Russian tactics will look like in in this endeavor, which are going to be more traditional, which we're already seeing, right, which is the rubbling of cities, um, the the bombing of the, the train station that we saw, 
right? Um, in addition to terrorizing the Ukrainian population, which, you know, I can't say if that was one of the aims or not. I'm, I, I'm guessing you would say that was, you know, partially one of the aims. The reason that would be a useful target is that you can prevent supplies, troops, ammunition, any sorts of resupply coming back into that region in order to support the pocket of Ukrainian troops that's still fighting there. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, the, the, the Russian operation will be to encircle and complete the destruction of that pocket. Uh, whether or not they can do it, we'll, we will see. And uh, another couple of factors to think about, um, one, exactly one month from today, the day we're recording this, May 9th, is a big celebration in Russia of victory in World War II. And Russian, Russian uh, I would say, identity is very fragile. I think you'd be shocked how much Russian identity relies on victory in World War II with the caveat that the years 1939 to 1941 don't exist because those were the years that they collaborated and cooperated with the Nazis. But like so much of Russian identity is that victory. So I think, I think unfortunately something very bad will happen very soon. Um, another wild card is Russian morale. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to imagine anything worse, any worse morale than what were the indicators that we're seeing from intercepted phone calls and other evidence from surrendered Russian soldiers. But the question is how indicative of is that of the general morale? Are we just seeing the worst little parts of it? Or is this a, will this, can this be a, a general collapse of morale and willingness to fight? Yeah. I, and the thing though is in the Russian historical experience, right? Like they generally take tons of casualties, but they always get they always get it together at some point, right? They always blunder into the right answer, which is also, I guess I would say is a, a third concern that I have. Because they can just keep feeding the meat grinder until they get the answer they want. You know, Marquita Custine predicted 200 years ago that Russia could not survive 20 years of contact with the Western world. Uh, he was wrong, obviously, but the access to information is a huge liability for Russia because I think the, the reason that they were able to operate with such a disregard to the lives of their own soldiers and their own people is because people were very isolated and they just thought that's the way the world is supposed to work. Um, I think that's that's less the case today than it was previously. But, but even if it is, you know what what can the average Russian do? What can the, in fact, what what can the oligarchs do? Right? They can't do any. Like as my my opinion is that like Putin's got that country on such lockdown, uh, particularly among the elites. There's nothing, you know. It'll just he will know if someone's even having a thought against them, they'll disappear. There is, there is a unit in the Ukrainian military made up of Russian volunteers. 
and there was a, a bit of a tragedy recently. Two brothers who were from our Russian family that moved to Ukraine after the invasion of Donbass uh, and joined the army, they were both killed uh, this last week. Uh, two Russian brothers whose parents decided to move to Ukraine after Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. Uh, they just felt like a moral obligation. It's a big sacrifice. So there's a little, um, it probably is just a little, but it's it's a lot more than nothing. Yeah, yeah. There's certainly, you know, I think the last poll I saw was 83% of the Russian population supported yeah. it. Um, it's probably not quite that high, but I also don't think it's like the West portrays it. Like yeah. it's, you know, it's 83% against and this and that, right? There's, if, if we followed, if we followed all that, right, we, we'd, um, we'd think that like Chaz was like a broad political movement in the United States, right? So, or, or that everyone on the right was a member of the January 6th, uh, right. you know, <laughs> so <clears throat> I think it's like any society, right? Where there's there's going to be a group of people, a minority who are against, and then a majority. Like I, I do believe that the majority of the Russian population is, um, is is backing Putin, and I think I, too. I think there's no doubt about that. And there's sort of like a just to share the Ukrainian perspective. There's like a perennial disappointment. Like Ukrainians always say or demonstrate through their actions. Look, you don't have to be afraid of this man. Look, you can be, you can have some freedom, some representation. That's what the life on the frontier of the steppe represented before there was a Ukraine. Like, it's like, look, you can be free. You just have to be a little bit brave. And the Russians always say or demonstrate through their actions, nope, we, we want to be oppressed as long as you are also oppressed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um... I don't know. Where, where do you think this thing ends up? I think Ukraine will be a free country and Russia will go into decline. Well, it's already in, it's already in decline. Actually, I, this is one thing I looked at last week. Uh, you know, since 1992, the Russian population, uh, you know, de declined from about 148 million in 1992 to 144 million in 2020. Um, that said, their GDP grew by about 3.8%, 3.7%, something like that a year. Ukraine's population actually declined by about 15%. Yep. Now, I don't know why. I'm assuming it's because of a, dia a broad diaspora. Um, because Poland had also had, uh, well, I, I'd have to. I, they were also fact, around 15%. It was um, worse than Europe. And, and again, I think it's because of a diaspora. I don't think there's any major. Now, now Russia, I don't know. I think Russia is more of just declining birth rate, high mortality. But again, there could be, there's, there's, pro, there's very likely some diaspora elements. So we're, what are your views on, on, on that? Well, there's demographic crises all over Eastern Europe. Uh, I, I believe Russia's is one of the most pronounced. Um, 
And this is a rare situation in which two countries with declining demographics are at war with each other. Uh, I hope that uh, a Ukrainian victory, and I it will be uh, for either a partial or total victory of Ukraine, uh, will lead to sort of a, a baby boom. And let me also say something that's palatable to Russians, or maybe. I think Ukraine in the long run will liberate Russia from this curse of the of the Golden Horde, or this curse of the uh, absolutism and tyranny of the Golden Horde, that Muscovy rose, rose as a vassal state of the Golden Horde and continued all of their absolutist, tyrannical ways. And the Golden Horde being the successor to Genghis Khan, basically. Right, successors of the Mongols. Uh, yeah, so they they there was like a little bit of a rift when like the the it's not as big as Russian history says. Russian history indicates the end of the times of troubles, but it wasn't an end. It was just the change of leadership. Everything else can the institutions all continued as they were, uh, in my view. So I think that curse will be lifted uh, either quickly or slowly, and then Russia can uh, rediscover itself as a free country with uh, lots of natural resources. Well, here's a provocative question. With 54% of the Russian population female, why is it so bellicose? It's, I don't think it has to do with the ratio of uh, women to men. That's a funny question though. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's inside joke. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'll, exp I'll explain afterwards, but, uh, um, you would think, you would think that there would be some sort of a calming effect, right? That's true. In fact, yeah, I believe societies that have an excess of men tend to be the bellicose societies historically. But China doesn't seem to be super bellicose, even though it has an excess of men. Same thing with India. China's pretty pretty aggressive but they're just doing it in a very patient sort of yeah. slow moving way they're not but they're not overtly aggressive like this is over like right. putin is over over the top aggression yeah i think here here the political historic role and uh political system trumps uh ratio of men to women yeah all right well with that, I, I kind of kept you way longer than I had asked you to stay. So I, I appreciate your insight on this topic. Well, let me add con congratulations to your viewers on watching it all the way to the end. Uh, and check out Ukraine Freedom Fund. That is a charity that I'm directly involved with. Uh, we're doing lots of great work, Ukraine Freedom Fund. And I'll again, I'll put the links down below so that people can click on it directly. Do you, by the way, do you have any updates on on how it's doing and and things like that? Yeah, we're buying stuff and shipping it every day. It's amazing. Uh, and, and by the way, I also um, have a. Actually, I don't have it, but there's there's an anthology that we put out to also raise money for Ukraine. Um, uh, let me let me let me let me bear with me. I want to pull it up so that. Uh, Building a Better Future, that's what it's called. Um, and I have a story in it called uh, Serpent's Wall. Are you familiar with that, Roman? 
No, but I'll order it right after we get done. Is it on, on Amazon or something? Yes, it's called uh, Building a Better Future. Um, it's edited by David uh, Flynn. And the, let me see what, the, what it says about the proceeds. So the proceeds are, I think they're handled by a um, British or, uh, you know, UK organization that will, you know, distribute the, distribute the funds. So, yeah, I don't have any more information than, than that, but all the pro like all, all the proceeds, I think the proceeds are going to, you know, first cover the costs obviously. So that, um, that the book is paid for and then everything else goes to, goes to Ukraine. So, um, but Serpent's Wall is based on a, uh, there's a, like an ancient fortification in Kitnik uh, near Kiev, I think, where um, you know that was built. There were multiple battles historically, and I just I go through a lot of Slavic history on dragons and, and things like that. And it also covers the uh, Holodomor, and um, you know it doesn't happen during the Holodomor, but it happens after the 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 Germans have left. And the Russians come back in, um, so it's it's an you know it's it's just a kind of a interesting story that is kind of um, historical fantasy. Let's call it building a better future on Amazon. That's right. So anyway, um, help Roman out first though, because that's actually going to uh, trucks and body armor and you know things like that that could really help the Ukrainian effort. Okay. With that, uh, thank you, Roman. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. If you enjoyed this video, hit like, and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.